While we must be careful not to equate science fiction with plausible outcomes, such as scenarios envisioned by Stevenson's Diamond Age, in which nanotechnology pollution is the norm in which they live, we also need to be realistic that these things could indeed happen and not hide our head in the sand as if they aren't real possibilities. Welcome to the Bioethics Podcast, a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity at Trinity International University. I'm Matthew Epinet, Executive Director of the Center. In this episode of the podcast, we have a recent lecture by Dr. Michael Sleesman, Director of Bioethics Degree Programs here at Trinity, on science fiction and the ethics of emerging technology. Before we get to that, though, I'm grateful to be able to announce an addition to our upcoming conference. Ambassador Morse H. Tan, Dean at Liberty University School of Law, will deliver the inaugural Virtue Ethics Lecture. This Virtue Ethics Lecture will lead off our 30th annual conference, The Christian Stake in Bioethics Revisited, Crucial Issues of Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow, which will take place on the campus of Trinity International University, June 22 through 24, 2023. The Virtue Ethics Lecture Series Endowed Fund was established in 2023 by Dr. Richard and Mrs. Elizabeth Zimmerman in memory of their parents, Dr. Willis and Mrs. Janice Zimmerman, and Mr. Henry and Mrs. Anna Wellhausen, because of their display of the virtues of generosity, kindness, and faithfulness. These virtues reflect the fruit of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, and impacted their family, friends, churches, neighbors, and community. We're deeply grateful to the Zimmermans for establishing this endowed fund, which will allow this lectureship to be an ongoing part of each year's conference. Among Ambassador Tan's current research interests is the application of virtue to the professional life, and we're delighted that he's willing to share his insights on this important topic at our conference in this inaugural Virtue Ethics Lecture. Ambassador Tan previously spoke at our 2018 conference, Bioethics and Being Human, on the topic Pursuing Justice for Humans. He served as the first Asian American ambassador at large in U.S. history. He is the foremost legal scholar on North Korea, and he's worked in legal academia for close to two decades. And as I mentioned, he currently serves as dean at Liberty University School of Law. Of course, this is only one of the now seven plenary lectures we'll have. The others include the history of CBHD and evangelical engagement with bioethics, Bioethics and Science Fiction, Current Themes and Future Realities, The Past and Future of Advanced Directives, Definitions of Death, Advice to Young Bioethicists, and Bioethics Today, Yesterday, and Tomorrow. In addition to Ambassador Tan, our speakers include medical doctor Peter Jaggard, CBHD's own historian Brian Just, literature professor Christina Bieberlake, ethics professor and CBHD Academy member Adam Omalanchunk, Scott Ray of Talbot School of Theology and Biola University, and yours truly. The dates are Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, June 22 through 24. Registration is ongoing. Visit cbhd.org and click on Annual Conference at the top of the page for more information and to register. And now, here is Michael J. Sleesman, Ph.D., Associate Professor of Bioethics and Director of Bioethics Degree Programs at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and Trinity International University. His lecture is entitled, From Science Fiction to Reality, The Bioethics of Emerging Technologies. 
For anyone that spends much time around bioethics, news headlines serve as frequent sources for spurring ethical reflection. Such was the case for this evening's presentation as well. Though I've been thinking about the relationship between science fiction and speculative ethics and the bioethics of emerging technology for quite some time, it was a headline over the Christmas break that drew my attention to the particular topic for this evening. The headline read, How Science Fiction Predicted High-Tech Developments in Chemistry. Perhaps not an earth-shattering title, but in the article, author Mark Lorsch highlights several present-day technologies and scientific developments foretold by science fiction. These fictionally anticipated scientific developments included such things in the news article, the depiction of video calls. And though Lorsch doesn't mention it, we could extend that to robots, rather ironically anticipated in a silent film from the 1920s, which was in black and white, the sci-fi classic Metropolis. From flat screen monitors hanging on walls in Star Trek to the chemical antidepressants centrally featured in the novel by Aldous Huxley, Brave New World, to plastic eating enzymes in the 1972 novel Mutant 59, to synthetic meat anticipated in cyberpunk classic by William Gibson, Neuromancer, or more recently, the sci-fi channel series, The Expanse. On to lab on the chip technology, similar to the instant DNA sequencers seen in the 1997 film Gattaca. Such media stories connecting science fiction and technology and scientific development are not all that uncommon. And just to clarify for our purposes this evening, I'm going to be using the term science fiction, sci-fi, to seamlessly include both literary and cinematic works, including some things that may be seen more on the stage rather than on the screen. Frankly, we could also expand this to include graphic novels and comic books, though these are beyond my interest this evening. A quick search of the past few years notes several popular level articles, such as Read Before Assembly, the Influence of Sci-Fi on Technology Design, a Forbes Magazine 2021 article, Future Shock, 11 Real-Life Technologies that Science Fiction Predicted, from a trend analysis piece published by a, uh, a hard drive and SSD storage company, Micron Insight, even a 2018 piece by the MIT Technology Review, When Science Fiction Inspires Real Technology. So while the article I encountered over Christmas break wasn't groundbreaking, it was highlighting a relationship that has been recognized for quite some time. Perhaps less surprisingly is the role of science influencing the thought and ideas of science fiction depictions of the future and future technologies. Behind the scene footage of such movies and sci-fi related TV series frequently reveal that scientists and tech specialists served as consultants in the writing and conceptualization, visual development of these shows and movies. And while not all sci-fi authors come from backgrounds in science and tech, many prominent authors do, such as classic sci-fi greats, Isaac Asimov, Robert Heinlein, Arthur C. Clarke, and others. Even still, the influence of science on science fiction is likely so non-controversial as to not be worth exploring much further, so we'll move on. That said, even without such backgrounds in science or technology, Prominent sci-fi authors such as William Gibson have been noted for their influence on a wide range of scientific fields and tech development. In perhaps one of the most interesting turns, Gibson himself commented that when he wrote his groundbreaking cyberpunk work in 1988, 
neuromancer, they had never so much as touched a PC. This will be interesting if you're familiar with this genre, because cyberpunk at its core is, is an emphasis on engagement of the world through technology. So Gibson anticipates an online reality, the metaverse that we think of now as the internet. What Gibson lacked in firsthand tech experience and knowledge, he made up, he more than made up for in his uncanny ability to anticipate the ways in which these technologies would develop and impact human communities and social relations. In fact, technology companies and even some governments employ individuals like Gibson, referring to them with the title futurist. That is, a futurist is a person specifically paid to think about the future and to help these companies and society at large to anticipate technology trends and developments. No surprise that many of them also moonlight as science fiction authors. Such connections are not merely those made by online news authors and mass media, but also the subject of more rigorous academic inquiry. This relationship between science fiction and science and tech development are not merely perceived connections due more so to recognition bias than to any actual causal influence on the research and development. It's no surprise that casual references to sci-fi have occurred in much of the science and tech research literature, and such connections have been studied since at least 2008. More recently, though, a 2018 study by Philip Jordan and his co-authors sought to take the examination a step further by attempting to not only identify casual references to science fiction, but rather to quantify what previously had only been anecdotally acknowledged, that these sci-fi visualizations, as they refer to it in the article, have inspired researchers in their scientific and tech R&D itself. Jordan and co-authors explored the references and usage of sci-fi in research literature specifically on human-computer interaction, with special focus on the academic proceedings from the Association for Computing Machinery's meeting spanning from 1982 to 2018. Beginning in 2013, the study found an exponential jump in the references to science fiction in the academic research literature. Indeed, from 2015 to 2017, nearly a third of the proceedings at the annual computer-human interaction meetings of the ACM had some reference to science fiction. Nearly a third of the academic presentations over a three-year period at an academic professional society meetings had science fiction references. Such references range from anecdotal social interest, so just merely suggestive things that were to kick off a discussion or whatever, on to those actually suggesting avenues for the study of human-robot interaction, so meaning that they were using the articles to help them develop designs for research studies, or for what they refer to as sci-fi prototyping, suggesting a more active role in the development of technology itself. They even noted that several of the presentations at these academic conferences focused on the use of sci-fi specifically as a means for discussing the next generation of technology, what they should be pursuing in the future. While this is merely one study in a specific area of emerging technology research, it's not the only academic inquiry to be sure. Indeed, since at least 2013, 
MIT, one of the leading research institutions in the world, has been offering courses such as science fiction to science fabrication. Another one, science fiction inspiring prototyping. Science fiction inspired envisioning and future crafting. And even more recently, a MOOC named SciFab, which they explain as an ever-evolving exploration of the use of science fiction to inspire and accelerate real-world innovation. Similar courses have since been offered at other research universities, such as those by Cynthia Bruckner at the University of Michigan. Given the role that science fiction has had to inspire and influence such development, perhaps it's no surprise that science fiction, likewise, has been used for the purposes of philosophical inquiry, ethics generally, and bioethics more particularly. From peer-reviewed journals and volumes from university presses to resources like CBHD's Bioethics at the Box Office, there has been a burgeoning literature at the intersection of fiction, film, and bioethics. One of the earliest reports of the President's Council on Bioethics under the administration of George W. Bush was the 2003 work, Being Human. This report was a collection of short essays, poetry, excerpts from classical literature, screenplays, and contemporary fiction, works from Homer to Flannery O'Connor, that were intended to assist readers in exploring the bioethical implications, as in the words of editor Leon Cass, quote, we search for a richer understanding and deeper appreciation of our humanity necessary for facing the new challenges of our biotechnological age, end quote. I'll return to the, explore this relationship between bioethics, fiction, and film a, a bit more in a few minutes, but just wanted to note it at this point. Setting aside their specific role in academic discourse, fantastical narratives have provided important venues for social and moral examination, as well as to provide opportunities to consider possible futures that stand before us. Returning to the 1927 film, Metropolis, if one looks beyond the passing depiction of a contemporary technology like video calling, the film primarily focuses on robots and what would later be referred to as cyborgs, the blurring of humans and machines. Metropolis was a pioneering work in sci-fi cinematography and has been the source of much contemporary reflection on the social dimensions of robotic technologies, cyborg technology, and feminism. But this film itself stands within a literary legacy. Fritz Lang's Metropolis followed not too long after in the steps of Gustav Mehring's 1915 novel, The Golem, and Carol Chepek's 1920 play, RUR, or more fully, Rossum's Universal Robots, both Czech literary works. For those unfamiliar with these, Chepek's play, RUR, was the first time the word robot was introduced into the English-speaking world. To be sure, such fanciful imaginaries of automata, mechanical men, clockwork beings, and artificial life was not new. One could trace the genealogical history of the development of robotics back to classical antiquity. Indeed, Greek mythology spoke of the automatones, or automatons, such as Talos, who was a giant bronze man crafted by Hephaestus, the god of smithing and craftsmanship, or more basically, the walking structures or statues created by the human hero Daedalus. Jewish folk folklore spoke of things called golems, particularly from the 11th through 16th centuries. This folklore built on the Talmudic description of Adam, 
described in Genesis, who is said to have been first created as a golem when he was formed from the dust of the earth prior to God's inbreathing of the breath of life. So just this form, the golem. The golem was an organic, artificial creation made of mud and clay. The most well-known golem narratives were referred to as the golem of Prague and likely served as background for Mayrink's 1915 novel, which subsequently influenced Metropolis and kicks off the modern science fiction interest in robotics that we can see leading all the way to such films like Star Wars and Blade Runner. Such narratives may have also served these golem narratives as the background for the modern fairy tale of the gingerbread man, something perhaps that many of you will remember from your childhood. One could fast forward through the Middle Ages to the Renaissance and Leonardo da Vinci's Automa Cavallari, a mechanical knight. Thought to be the result of historical exaggeration promoting the superiority of da Vinci as an inventor beyond his times, the discovery of some of da Vinci's notebooks in recent years that included sketches and an incomplete design uh, gave some credence to supposedly apocryphal stories of such a mechanical knight, which was said to have been given to one of his wealthy patrons as a gift in the late 1400s. Or to move on more quickly to the automata of the Victorian era, and here you have both the depiction of Leonardo da Vinci's mechanical knight and Mallardet's draftsman Rotter, which some of you may recognize from the movie Hugo. This same period in history, the early 1800s, with this ascendant confidence in science and fascination with automation, saw the production of the seminal work of science fiction, or speculative fiction, I should say, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, a work that has been celebrated for its 200th year, 200 years since its publication. Such fantastical narratives from the Greek myths of Hephaestus to the Jewish golem to Shelley's Frankenstein have provided important cautions against hubris and the potential dehumanizing effects of our drive to both master and control nature and life. So we're now going to move into more of the specific reflection on ethics, a rising chorus of critique. So given all of this reflection on the influence of science fiction on science and its longstanding value for social reflection, it is perhaps no surprise that when approximately a thousand participants gathered for an ethics summit, Beings 2015, that science fiction would be a part of their conversation. The intent of Beings 2015 was a gathering of global thought leaders to reach consensus on the direction of biotechnology for the 21st century. Conference speakers included bioethicists, geneticists, and other research scientists, a host of scholars and professors in various academic disciplines, and a few notable authors, such as Margaret Atwood of The Handmaid's Tale fame. Given the eclectic and diverse schedule of speakers and those in attendance, it's likely no surprise that the event sparked off rather heated response. At the gathering, one controversial speaker had some rather scathing words for the purported obstructionism of bioethics counseling bioethicists to, quote, stay out of the way of progress and cautioned against, quote, vague fears as standing in the way of saving millions of lives, end quote. But his words were merely the opening salvo and a broadside of follow-on attacks, dismissing any role for science fiction or other types of fictional narratives in contemporary ethics and to guide society in its reflections on 
the pursuit of technology. Shortly after the conference, journalist and science writer Carl Zimmer appeared on NPR as part of a panel discussing the genetic technology CRISPR and toward the end of the show, in his words, went on a bit of an anti-Gattaca rant. Reflecting further on this rant in, on his uh, National Geographic blog, he notes, quote, if we're going to talk about international bans, I'd like an international ban on invoking Gattaca in these discussions. It's like saying we shouldn't genetically engineer people because we will end up with an army of flying monkeys who will enslave the rest of us. I mean, we can imagine an army of flying monkeys over monkey overlords, and we can all agree that such an army of flying monkey overlords would be a bad thing. But is that the most useful way to talk about the real social and medical impacts of a new technology? End quote. For those unfamiliar with the reference, Gattaca is a 1997 film depicting a future of genetic control and the ensuing effects of genetic discrimination. Having just celebrated the film's 25th anniversary, it is a common reference in discussions of genetic ethics and bioethics. And ironically, despite Zimmer's protestations, just a few years prior to his blog comments and his com comments on NPR, the film was voted in 2011 by a number of individuals at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, not necessarily a bastion of those concerned about the future of technology, to be the most realistic sci-fi movie of all time. Okay, so just kind of put that in context. A few months after Zimmer's comments on NPR, Steven Pinker, who had been the person initially at the Beings 2015 conference or summit, that had given the provocative comments about bioethicists get, getting out of the way and to avoid the need for speculative reflections, would further develop his criticism, this time in a piece in the Boston Globe, arguing, quote, a truly ethical bioethics should not bog down research and red tape moratoria or threats of prosecution based on nebulous but sweeping principles such as dignity, sacredness, or social justice. Nor should it thwart, according to Pinker, Research that is likely benefited, uh, that has likely benefits now or in the near future by sowing panic about speculative harms in the distant future. These include perverse analogies with nuclear weapons or supposed Nazi atrocities, science fiction dystopias like Brave New World and Gattaca, freak show scenarios like armies of cloned Hitlers, people selling their eyeballs on eBay, or warehouses of zombies to supply people with spare organs. Of course, individuals must be protected from identifiable harm. But we already have ample safeguards for the safety and informed consent of patients and research subjects, end quote. Lest we think this fairly recent episode was an anomaly in the public discourse, one can look to the regular appearance of such criticisms that fiction and speculative ethics are an illegitimate source for proper ethical reflection. One could point to a 2004 critique of the President's Council on Bioethics in the wake of that 2003 publication that we mentioned a few minutes ago, the literary anthology Being Human. Bioethicists Jonathan Moreno and Ruth Geyer responded with an article, Slouching Toward Policy, Lazy Bioethics and the Perils of Science Fiction, which was published in the prominent American Journal of Bioethics. Moreno and Geyer charged that, quote, Bioethicists must make themselves useful to society in order to, to deserve and retain the public's trust. They can best do this by ensuring that decision-making and public policy are grounded in facts, not fictions and fantasies. They go on to write, 
A common and disturbing feature of the ubiquitous bioethical commentaries is the short shrift, often complete inattention given to the feasibility of the technologies under discussion, end quote. In developing their argument, the authors acknowledge the two modes of bioethics proposed by prominent bioethicist Daniel Callahan, these being the prophetic mode and the regulatory mode. The prophetic mode in their analysis marked the early visionary years of bioethics, which, quote, set on a distant horizon and the implications these and other developments might have for human nature and society. And they note that this prophetic mode had an important role in the early years in bioethics and may still have an important role. Yet they also note a, an emerging secondary role that has increasingly become more important in the mode needed in public discourse, that of the regulatory mode, which deals more with the practical dimensions of setting public policy and specifically science policy. Their lament was the rising confusion between individuals engaged in bioethics between these two modes, the prophetic and the regulatory. They conclude, quote, long range philosophical concerns are both appropriate and instructive for policy discussions and the deep reflection stimulated by great literature to enrich public discourse. But science fiction should not be allowed to drive and shape science policy, end quote. Given the increasing interest of using narrative and particularly fiction for bioethics training and engagement, the harsh critique of the import of fictional and generally dystopian narratives may seem jarring and perhaps out of step. Perhaps more pointedly, these questions of the appropriateness and potential role of spe speculative ethics have found extensive development in the ethics of emerging technology literature, particularly the literature on nanotechnology ethics, or what's referred to more commonly as nanoethics. Come to back to that in a minute, though. Bioethics and fiction and film. Given the potential of emerging technologies like nanotechnology or robotics and artificial intelligence, it's no surprise that it has also captured the attentions of science fiction authors in their imaginative exploration of human futures and alternate modes of existence. The value of fiction and film to philosophy, ethics, and medicine has been on the rise in the past decade or two with increased attention given to the contributions of the medical humanities in its role in education. Examples in nanotechnology from science fiction range from cautionary tales such as Michael Crichton's 2002 novel Prey, in which a nanotechnology swarm becomes uncontrollable and wreaks havoc upon a research facility onto such classic works as Isaac Asimov's Fantastic Voyage from 1966, which depicted miniaturized machines moving throughout the body. More recently, Neil Stevenson's 1995 novel, The Diamond Age, opens in a world devastated by nanotechnology. And more recently, for those of you who have seen the series on Amazon Prime, William Gibson's The Peripheral, first published in 2014 exploring two futures in which the technology of 3D printing gives way to the proliferation of self-replicating nano-assemblers, demonstrating an interesting progression of possible technological evolution. Donal Amathuna, in his 2009 book on nanotech ethics, proposes that such works allow for exploration of character and thus potential human responses to the technology. Secondly, dialogue, so character, dialogue or explicit representation of competing views or perspectives on an ethical issue. And third, 
values, character, dialogue, values, the values of a culture, person, or the technologies themselves, relevant to ethical engagement with the emerging technologies. So character, dialogue, and values. He goes on to suggest that such technologies as nanotechnology provide science fiction authors the opportunity to make predictions about what is to come and to issue warnings. Other authors, such as Susan Schneider, in her volume on science fiction and philosophy, explore the role of science fiction as thought experiments. Schneider describes them as, quote, windows into the fundamental nature of things. She goes on to suggest, intriguingly, if you read science fiction writers like Stanislaw Lem, Isaac Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke, Robert Sawyer, and others, you are already aware that some of the best science fiction tales are, in fact, larger version of philosophical thought experiments. Burton Porter, in a book entitled Philosophy Through Fiction and Film, suggests to view philosophy through literature can place the ideas within human context. Philosophy and literature often have similar concerns. So the novel, play, or short story can offer a rich source for reflection, showing the basic issues of human life in a moving way. One need not spend much time in discussions surrounding transhumanism, human futures, H+, before encountering extensive engagement with fiction and film, not just from detractors, but supporters alike. Indeed, many prominent transhumanists are themselves science fiction authors. I think of the 2015 publication, The Palgrave Handbook of Posthumanism in Film and Television, or Robert Geraci's 2010 work, Apocalyptic AI, or the books on philosophy related to television shows like Battlestar Galactica or the movie series, The Matrix. I could go on and list a number of works at the intersection of technology and philosophy through fiction and film, as well as bioethics in the movies and literature and from the wide breadth of medical ethics and education. Indeed, similar to the MIT courses I mentioned earlier, one could focus your entire academic studies in the medical humanities, exploring advanced degrees, even doctorates, to examine these connections. So if philosophy, ethics, and several specialties, uh, subspecialties of scientific inquiry and tech research, as well as medical education and bioethics, have all developed increasing interest in the role of fictional narratives over the years, why the sharp critiques? from individuals such as Geyer, Moreno, Pinker, and Zimmer. To further unpack that, I'll focus our attention to the formal critique of what has been referred to against as speculative ethics as it has developed in the nanotechnology literature as a lens to understanding at least some of the more valid concerns that have been raised. So critiquing speculative ethics. In a 2003 article published in the journal Nanotechnology entitled Mind the Gap, Science and Ethics in Nanotechnology, the authors noted that while the science leaps ahead, the ethics lags behind, focusing, unfortunately, on unlikely catastrophic scenarios far off into the future. They note, quote, some commentators on nanotechnology have examined the applications of nanotech, but have often focused on these distant controversial applications. For example, Bill Joy wrote an influential and widely discussed paper in Wired Magazine about gray goo. Stephen Block, Stanford bioethicist, suggests that much of this hype is an illogical extrapolation of current research. Nobody has a clue how to build a nanoassembler, much less get one to reproduce itself. Others have tended to hype the potential applications of nanotech. Gary Sticks 
who edited a special issue of Scientific America and Nanotech, has observed that there has emerged a cult now of futurists who foresee nanotech as a pathway to a technological utopia, unparalleled prosperity, pollution-free industry, even something resembling eternal life. Following in the footsteps of this 2003 article, Alfred Nordman and Ari Rip wrote a 2009 article, Mind the Gap Revisited, in which they take this critique a step further. Nordman and Rip argue the new gap has opened because most nanoethics is too futuristic, focused on nano enabled devices that can read our thoughts, for example, at the expense of ongoing incremental developments that are more ethically significant. In the piece, they discuss philosophy and the role of thought experiments in hypothetical cases. They note through these philosophers, though these philosophers want to articulate what are challenging issues, discuss what possible actions can be justified, and how and identify dilemmas that may be faced. However, they note this can give rise to the mistaken impression that these ethical or philosophical discussions are in fact addressing real, actual, rather than hypothetical developments, end quote. Going further, they know, as speculative ethics leaps ahead in time, it focuses ethical concerns on future worlds. The promoters of speculative ethics cite the need to reflect as early as possible on the profound changes that may be ahead. However, this in overlooks the opportunity cost. We can only do so much when our resources, ethical or otherwise, they note, are limited, and other ethical questions may indeed be even more important. There are good reasons to think that the opportunity cost of speculative ethics are too high, with less spectacular but more pressing here and now kinds of ethical issues, not getting the attention they so well deserve, and more speculative visions not being subjected to reality checks, end quote. The takeaway of their argument is a plea for less speculation and more focus on the ethical issues that are being presented by this technology now to actual research scientists. In fact, they argue that such speculative approaches utilize a methodologically flawed approach, an if-then argument that is wrong. They suggest this if-then argument is what looks like a merely possible and definitely speculative future in the first half of an if-and-then statement about possible futures turns into something inevitable in the second half of the argument. So if it can be this bad, then it must going to be this bad. So the if and then. Such speculative approaches, they charge, treat imagined futures, hypotheticals, as if they already indeed exist, and thereby displace actual presenting issues of the emerging technologies that are faced by researchers and engineers in the here and now. If you're interested in seeing more of how this argument is develop, developed, I direct you to Nordman's earlier 2007 essay in nanoethics entitled, If and Then, A Critique of Speculative Nanoethics. The takeaway of this argument, a plea for less speculation. Again, in their words, speculative ethics poses a twofold danger. Present developments are not questioned because no one is paying attention to them and worries about the most futuristic visions of nanotech can cast a shadow on all ongoing work in nanoscience and technology. And there are others that suggest that this isn't just limited to nanotech research, but many areas of biotech uh, uh, research and other areas of emerging technology. For their part, I think Nordman and Rip raise an important set of questions. The first is that I think they point to a genuine concern of the speculative ethics literature. 
regardless if I agree with their employment of this if-then charge and whether or not I think it's a legitimate critique, they have helpfully pointed out a tension that exists in emerging technology assessment, the tension between the near term and the far horizon, something that requires us to think about this relationship between the ethical issues that we need to address right now because they are uh, involved in research that is in process as we speak and things that might occur sometime in our lifetime or possibly never, regardless if they would be 100 or 200 or 300 years in the future. The second response that I have is that I think that this literature from Moreno and Geyer to Nordman and Rip to Pinker and Zimmer demonstrate the challenge of misunderstanding the role of narrative. And here, I mean specifically how fictional narratives play a role in philosophy, ethics, and bioethics. And that is something that Nordman and Rip mention, the role of thought experiments. So for that, I'll take a brief excursus to literary theory and a quick detour to the work of the philosopher Paul Ricoeur. What is it that narratives really do? Several years ago, I had the opportunity to co-edit a volume titled Everyday Theology with my now colleague, Kevin Van Hooser, one of the theology professors here in the Divinity School. The book emerged from a course on cultural hermeneutics here at TEDS and included essays interpreting different cultural artifacts like films and documents such as the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, things like megachurch architecture, and trends like busyness and fantasy funerals as a way to both understand and engage with culture from a distinctly Christian perspective. In the opening section of the volume, Van Hooser notes, quote, culture is the lens through which a vision of life and social order is expressed, experienced, and explored, a lived worldview. While he's talking specifically about interpreting culture, the statement can be applied even more directly to things like text, specifically narratives, and especially fictional narratives, such as exist in the sci-fi literature. Leaning on the interpretation theory of Paul Ricoeur, Van Hooser notes that what we encounter in a text is not another person, but a new way of being in the world. He clarifies, quote, cultural texts project worlds of meaning that invite us in and encourage us there to make a home. The world of a cultural text unfolds a possible way of living together, a possible way of being human. We can go further, these culturally created worlds Prevent, uh, present themselves accompanied by the whisper of their creators. And behold, it was very good. There's the rub, he notes. Should we accept this invitation? Should we appropriate the projected cultural world, enter into it and pitch our tents, end quote. The details of Ricoeur's theory of interpretation are beyond the scope of our concerns this evening. But if you are interested in more detail, Van Hooser unpacks this more extensively in the everyday theology text, or you could just consult Ricoeur's work, Interpretation Theory, or some of his other volumes on hermeneutics. Based on this understanding, though, that texts embody the worldviews of their makers, or in the case of fictional texts, that they may embody potential or experimental worldviews or ways of viewing the world, Van Hooser claims, quote, what we are ultimately trying to understand when we read cultural texts is how its producers view the meaning of life, we may therefore ask of any cultural text as a proxy for its producers, what are your intentions towards me? What do you want me to believe or do? And into what are you trying to fashion me? Van Hooser concludes, each time I'm confronted with the world in front of the cultural text, I have to make a decision about what to do and where to dwell. 
This is the moment of truth for me. What we appropriate when we accept cultural texts is a certain way of looking at the world around us, a certain way of being in the world. Do I accept the offer address to my imagination to view the world this way rather than another? Do I accept the offer address to my everyday existence to live this way rather than another? If we fall into step with a certain way of living in the world, we develop certain habits, habits that in turn shape our character. More than mere literary conventions or speculative and otherwise improbable futures as Nordman, Rip, and company would have us to believe, these are not mere features of entertainment. Science fiction and other fictional narratives offer a direct connection between emerging technology and ethics by allowing us to explore possible worlds, possible futures at the nexus of science, technology, and human values. This is something that Robert Geraci in his 2010 work that I mentioned earlier, Apocalyptic AI does, when he explores accounts of sci-fi cyber theology and depictions of AI, robotics, virtual reality, and transhumanism through the work of prominent scholars in these areas, as well as in the sci-fi literature. Such speculative ethics may envision either dystopian or even utopian futures and serve as useful talking points for technology assessment to explore possible ethical and social implications of these emerging technologies. They could point us to questions we should ask, not only for the future, but also for the present. To query, are these the values that we want to promote going into the future? To ask ourselves, is this the future or the type of future we wish to inherit or to pass down to our children or grandchildren? And if not, what do we need to do differently? So while I think that Moreno and Nordman and some of the other critics may have a valid point that bioethics all too often may move to replace presenting issues with speculative possibilities, I'm unsure whether Nordman and company have appropriately understood the role that narrative might play in thought experiments for ethical reflection itself, not only as a predictor of such technologies and whether they will exist, but also to raise fundamental questions about value and possible modes of human existence and human futures. Indeed, in some ways, I think this is form of special pleading, because as we noted in the earlier portion of this evening's talk, science itself seems to not only influence science fiction, but the fictional narratives of science fiction also seem to influence the agenda and research of science and technology. And frankly, that isn't even to begin to speak about the growing challenge of hype and speculative optimism within scientific research grants and science writing in general. And I'll come back to that in a minute. So I'll turn my attention now to briefly look at a few areas of concern that might help us to sketch out a more robust form of technology assessment. Merging technologies, the challenge of ethics amidst conceptual and policy vacuums. While the positive potential for emerging technologies are vast, it would be naive at best to not only recognize that there are potential risks some which are small, but also could be at a scale that could result in a catastrophic consequence, such as the mass destruction of nature or of human life as a whole. Given the nanometer scale at which nanotechnology functions, for instance, disasters involving environmental contamination of nanotechnologies impacting both water and food supplies could be catastrophic, potentially damaging and proving very difficult to remove. 
If it's so small that it can move through any barrier substance, how, in fact, would we remove it? How would we catch it? While we must be careful not to equate science fiction with plausible outcomes, such as scenarios envisioned by Stevenson's Diamond Age, in which nanotechnology pollution is the norm in which they live, we also need to be realistic that these things could indeed happen and not hide our head in the sand as if they aren't real possibilities. As a result, risk assessment for effects on environment, health, and safety must be considered very carefully and guarded against given the challenges for both detecting and removing things like nanotechnology materials. However, the challenge with many emerging technologies, precisely because they promise to be so disruptive, is that they are emerging in what is referred to in the literature as conceptual vacuums and policy vacuums. That means that we don't have early precedents to assist us in guiding us to know the ways in which we should be cautious. Potential futuristic applications of nanobots and nanoassemblers have given rise to concerns even among the most ardent supporters of nanotechnology. So this is not just the purview of individuals who are naysayers, but for the early proponents and those doing the research themselves. The possibility of an accident with self-replicating nanotechnology could lead to something that could be easily too tough, too small, and too rapidly spreading to stop. These are the words of K. Eric Drexler, considered to be one of the founding fathers of nanotechnology. Often referred to as the gray goo problem or the gray goo scenario, global environmental disasters resulting from an accident with nanotechnology have generally been, quote, downplayed as an unlikely concern. But the potential for localized environmental contamination remains. And subsequent regulations and policies should be examined that promote due diligence on the part of individuals and corporations before releasing such materials publicly. Mitchell and company in their volume, Biotech and the Human Good, note that such considerations need to entail the need for strategies early on for containment, detection, and inactivation of these technologies. At the very least, Cameron and Mitchell in another article suggest that efforts must be made to facilitate open dialogue between individuals, between society and corporations pursuing the release of nanotechnology, between government bodies, the general public, as well as to actively engage with risk analysis, risk management, and acceptable options for risk transfer. So when do we move forward? But how do we have adequate analysis when we are so notoriously bad at anticipating the pace and pathways of technology development, a point that author Rebecca Roach has articulated. One thinks of robotics as an object lesson here, or even space exploration. Despite all of the developments of SpaceX in recent years, if you were a scientist from the 1960s and 1970s, or if you had just watched Jetsons as a child, you would have anticipated that space travel and robots would be a commonplace by now. Or in the area of genetics, or if you had asked a scientist, even just 10 years ago, would we be genetically manipulating human embryos that would be brought to term within the next decade or so? They would have noted, no, we are many years from that. In fact, that was done back in 2018, albeit with widespread condemnation, condemnation within the scientific community. So here we have examples of technology moving much slower and other technology moving much more quickly. The pace of technology development of research, scientific inquiry, is often very difficult to anticipate. 
Nanotechnology in particular presents challenges for constructing accurate threat matrices due to uncertainty regarding potential toxicity and pollution will continue to present particular challenges for risk management, insurance industries, and others for the near future and for the far horizon. Clear priority must be given in nanoscience to study these aspects of potential risks alongside traditional emphases on discovery. Most models of risk analysis and risk management are based on evolutionary developments within a given field. So they use prior examples to help develop threat matrices, probabilities of what sorts of things might happen. The difficulty in emerging areas such as nanotechnology that mark revolutionary or transformative changes is that potential for damage cannot be assessed. One must carefully distinguish between those potential risks related to events attributable to a cause as opposed to those whose causality merely cannot be excluded, so-called phantom risks. And yet, one must still anticipate all of them. I'm coming near the end here. Last major section before our conclusion. Hype and speculative narratives of scientific progress. Particularly within Western countries, the current academic research environment has resulted in criticisms with respect to ethics and research practices. One of these criticisms includes the increasing challenges presented by hype in individual research applications or budgetary proposals for entire fields of inquiry due to the increasingly competitive environment, procure grants, and other forms of funding. This activity may take multiple forms, such as exaggerating a project's feasibility, likely results, or significance with regard to benefits. Such hyping of research may also lead to media distortion in coverage of new technologies. While media distortion is not solely the result of hype within the research community, as author McGinn notes, continued research participation in or endorsement of media coverage of scientific or engineering developments that turn out to be distorted can dilute public trust and foster public misunderstanding of science and engineering, end quote. Such activities become counterproductive to active public engagement on such complex emerging technologies by impeding important ethical considerations in the public deliberation process. So the difficulty of what can be communicated, both from a technical standpoint, but also from the standpoint that because they want to get the funding, they often project a much more optimistic set of likely outcomes from the research study, even if these don't happen to be likely. So we have a sort of double-edged sword here. If such cr critics of speculative ethics employ the critique of speculative dystopian narratives, one might also raise a similar critique of the hype and utopian narratives that often accompany projections of benefits of emerging technologies. So for instance, one thinks of the work of Eric Drexler, uh, who I mentioned as one of the founding fathers of nanotechnology in his 1986 work, Engines of Creation, and the charges that have been leveled at his work that it reflected more fanciful speculation than reasonable extrapolation of contemporary nanotechnology. So um, many have commented that the book reads more like science fiction than it did like a technical discussion of the possibilities of the emergence of nanotechnology. This, uh, um, within na nanoscience and nanotech research community, Drexler's promotion of nanobots and self-replicating nanoassemblers has had a polarizing effect resulting in the field in a division between those who focus on the near-term potential of nanotech based upon strides that have already been made and are perceived to be likely outcomes from current research capabilities and those who take a much more futuristic 
or speculative approach to nanotech so that scientific inquiry itself is divided along these lines. Such speculative approaches often advance the idea of increasing convergence of emerging technologies to promote such possibilities as radical life extension, human enhancement, augmentation, cryonics, and attempts to guide the future of human evolution and human futures through things like transhumanism and posthumanism. Indeed, as we briefly sketched earlier, one could easily draw connections to the developments in robotics, the important role that sci-fi has played in shaping that arena. And if you're interested in discussing that more, I'd be happy to answer uh, questions related to specifically to robots. I'd be happy to talk about robots, or you can consult the article that I published in the Encyclopedia of Global Bioethics on robot and robot ethics. So in conclusion, as with all rapidly evolving arenas of emerging technologies that present profound disruptive abilities to reshape industries and social practices, balancing ethical reflection of existing robotic technologies and nanotechnologies and other emerging technologies with anticipating futuristic applications is a delicate task. Merely setting aside the speculative dimension of potential applications in emerging technology, however, seems to ignore the importance of these such thought experiments and of long-term analysis necessary to implement appropriate policy and regulatory regimes in the conceptual and policy vacuums that exist within the context of unknown risks for such emerging technologies. Indeed, the scale of such impact has led more than a few tech innovators, such as Elon Musk and Bill Gates, to suggest that things like AI and robotics with it present an area of existential human risk that demands speculative ethics. So here you have tech innovators themselves advocating for such needs. Given the rapid pace of research and development in technology arenas and the time necessary to adequately explore emerging areas of ethical inquiry, merely reflecting on these existing technologies would seem to result in a responsive model of ethics that never actually shapes the development of the technology. To paraphrase a key figure in the early reflection on computer ethics, should ethics always follow technology development so that we simply react to technology developments, or should we reverse the process so that technology development follows ethics? That was from Deborah Johnson in her work, Computer Ethics. Technology ethics and ethical assessment of emerging technologies, such as robotic technologies and nanotechnologies, are perhaps necessarily speculative endeavors. However, an appropriate caution must be raised to prevent the conflation of hypotheticals with presenting technologies and such ethical discourse. We need to address both the near term and the far term to promote a truly human and humane future. Thank you. That was From Science Fiction to Reality, The Bioethics of Emerging Technologies, by Dr. Michael Sleesman, Associate Professor of Bioethics and Director of Bioethics Degree Programs at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and Trinity International University. As a reminder, registration for our 30th annual conference, The Christian Stake in Bioethics Revisited, is ongoing. For more information and to register, visit cbhd.org and click on Annual Conference at the top of the page. You've been listening to the Bioethics Podcast, a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity, copyright 2023, all rights reserved. The Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity is a Christian bioethics research center 
at Trinity International University, exploring the nexus of biomedicine, biotechnology, and our common humanity. Our website, cbhd.org, has a wealth of materials on a wide range of bioethical issues. For more information about the Center and to support the work of the Center and projects like this podcast, please visit our website, cbhd.org. My name is Matthew Epinet, and I'm the Executive Director of the Center. Thank you for listening to the Bioethics Podcast. Thank you.